Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this new day, a day which we have never seen before, a day full of opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth, <clears throat> to fellowship with your people, to have Sabbath rest. Uh, we praise you for the beauty of your creation, in particular the warmth of this nearly spring day. We lift up to you now all of our thanks and praise for all the many blessings you bestow upon us. At the same time, we lift up to you all the burdens of our hearts, all of our anxieties, those things which weigh us down. We continue to pray for a solution to the problem in Ukraine. We ask that you would convert and soften the necessary hearts, <clears throat> that you would cause violence to cease, and justice and peace to rule in that land. We pray now, Lord, as your word goes forth, as always, that it might be for the salvation of souls, the transformation of lives, the edification of all hearers, the furtherance of your kingdom, and ultimately the glory of your name. For it is in Jesus' name we pray that the church say amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is the gospel lesson, which has already been read, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It is the famous story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It always begins our Lenten season on the first Sunday of Lent. It sets the keynote <clears throat> for the remainder of the Lenten season of repentance and contrition. Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. My sermon title for today is based on verses 4 and 8, and to an extent on verse 12. Don't worry about that, Louise. That's too mean to put up there. It is written. <clears throat> it is written. At the dawn of history, God created humankind in God's own image, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and placed them in paradise, the Garden of Eden. Everything was fine, you may recall, until a crafty serpent came along, tempted them to disobey the lone prohibition God had given them, namely not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed the test, fall into what became known as original sin, and the rest is history. <clears throat> Having fallen to the temptation, using the serpent's words, to be like God, they are banished and exiled from the garden, the cherubim bandying a flaming sword guarding the entrance so that they might not return. Because of this first act of sin, death enters creation for the first time. Do not eat of that fruit, God commands them, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And so when this sin of pride, disobedience, and rebellion is eventually revealed, God declares to them, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. <clears throat> 4,000 biblical years later, we arrive at a similar scene. Not two human beings, but one. An agent of temptation who by this time has shed his serpentine form and acquired the name the devil. And it is no longer a lush, bucolic garden of paradise, but rather the opposite. A barren, dry, rocky, lifeless, and lonely place in the Judean desert. Interestingly enough, John Milton, the famous English poet, in the sequel to his famous work, Paradise Lost, 
made the temptation of Jesus here, rather than his crucifixion, the central event in Jesus' efforts to regain the world. Only now, the test is inverted. Can you be like God? The serpent had asked in Eden. Can you be truly human? He seems to now ask in the desert. This particular account of Jesus' temptation can be found in all three synoptic, that is, similar gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. In each of these three gospels, it occurs at the very beginning, sandwiched briefly between Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan and the beginning of his public ministry in Galilee. In Mark, believed to be the earliest written of the Gospels, there is only a cryptic two-sentence account which lacks any mention of the specific temptations, only that Jesus was with the wild beasts and angels ministered to him. Matthew and Luke, writing later, expand the narrative, furnishing further details and mentioning three separate temptations, although reversing the order of the last two. This story of Jesus' temptation is always the assigned lectionary reading for the first Sunday in Lent, striking the keynote for the entire season. Indeed, Lent is a 40-day season, precisely in imitation of Jesus' 40 days out in the wilderness, battling the demonic. We see here in verse number 1 that fresh off his baptism, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Often, after our own baptisms or conversion experiences or significantly high spiritual moments, we too are similarly full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is immediately led by this same Spirit out into the wilderness. It is intriguing and insightful, to say the least, that the Spirit with which you are full on momentous inspirational occasions is the same Spirit that will lead you into difficult places and undesirable positions. The Spirit which claims you as a child of God is bestowed upon you at baptism and which seals you, according to Ephesians, as a guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it, is the same Spirit which will lead you to a place you'd rather not go. A barren, desert, wilderness place. The abode of demons, the scene of temptation, A place, perhaps, of a life and death struggle. And it may do so, at least in this text, immediately, back to back. We can be surprised and disheartened by the fact that a supreme moment of God awareness or consciousness or a clear moment of calling and purpose is not followed immediately by smooth sailing, unimpeded progress, or a sustained momentum which only increases. The text informs us of the opposite. As soon as God claims us, the devil tempts us. As soon as we are baptized in water, we are baptized by fire. As soon as we leave the affirming crowds, we are disquieted by the solitude. As soon as we come to embrace the grace and gospel of God, namely the forgiveness of our sins, the ancient adversary raises his ugly head and says, Oh, really? All your sins? Even those sins? As soon as your heart alights on a goal, a destination, your enthusiasm fades into demonic whispers, 
but you don't really have what it takes to get there. The qualifications, the experience, the resources, the drive. To make matters worse, verse 2 <clears throat> reveals that Jesus was there in the wilderness for 40 days and that He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, He was famished. Then the devil said. Notice, if you will, the devil doesn't show up or speak until the end of this period of time. The temptations don't arise. Spiritual warfare isn't engaged until Jesus is at His weakest point, utterly famished at the end of the 40-day period. If the devil is in the details, my friends, Perhaps the details are as mundane as too much stress or anxiety, not enough sleep or proper nourishment, too many hours of hard work at multiple jobs, not enough joy in life, little purpose or meaning, anything which renders you depleted, malnourished, susceptible, and vulnerable. In verses 3 through 12, you see three different temptations in rapid successive order. None of them inherently evil. None of them involving sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The temptation to turn stone into bread, thereby satisfying his own hunger and need for nourishment. The temptation to exert power and authority over the governments of this world, thereby bringing justice and peace to all the earth. The temptation to cast himself off the height of the temple, thereby proving the miraculous powers of God's intervention and deliverance. And the truth of Psalm 91, which is also a sign for today, particularly its 11th and 12th verses. And two of the three temptations we see the devil directly challenge Jesus' identity, who he is. Remember, just a few verses prior to our text today at Jesus' baptism, God the Creator has just spoken from heaven, you are my beloved Son. And yet here in verse 3, and again in verse 9, the devil challenges him, if you are the Son of God, then. So the testing here is of Jesus' very identity. Whether or not He is the Son of God, and if so, what kind of Son will He be? You and I, my friends, live in a world which calls us out and challenges us each and every day in terms of our identity. Are you who God says you are? Are you really a child of God? In a small way, it happens every time you drive on an interstate highway. Can I get a witness? In more significant ways, it may happen every time you go to a doctor's appointment, undergo a surgery, pay your bills, deal with a wayward child, handle a estranged or estranged family relationship. Every time you step back and truly assess your life, whether you are where you want to be, should be, or deserve to be. So you're really a child of God, huh? You can hear the devil say sarcastically. Really? 
Look at your life circumstances. Come on. Does God really care about you? In the text, Jesus is challenged to prove it. Prove his identity. Prove his case by exhibiting power. Power to miraculously turn stone to bread. Power to compel allegiance and belief. Power to violate the laws of nature. And we too are challenged to do the same. Prove it by power. Transform your sickness into health. Your failure into success. Your poverty into wealth. Your doubt into faith. Uncertainty into security and alienation into acceptance. Transform your external circumstances from bad to good if you are a child of God. And yet we have a God who will years later tell Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Which means here in the text... Jesus will refuse the temptation to exhibit his power. He will consistently show restraint. And he will not do what he is in fact capable of doing. Despite future occasions where Jesus will in fact demonstrate his power by working miracles, there will also be instances where he will not. Where he will show restraint. When he and his disciples are refused entry into a Samaritan village, for example, his disciples ask him, should we bid fire come down from heaven and consume them because they've treated us inhospitably? And Jesus rebukes them for saying this. When he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, furthermore, he does not resist and indeed rebukes his disciples who wish him to fight by saying, do you not know that I can appeal to my father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Verse 13 concludes our narrative today by saying, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. That time would come again at least twice in the months to come. When Jesus tells his disciples what kind of Messiah he is, namely that suffering, rejection, and death are all involved, Peter, desiring a powerful Messiah, rebukes Jesus only to have Jesus turn and rebuke him by saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of humankind, but of God. And then at the very end, as Jesus hangs bloodied and battered from a cross, the same line of questioning will appear. The same temptation to show dazzling power remains. The people passing by his crucifixion remarked, He saved others. Let him save himself now if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. The rulers and the soldiers comment, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself and come down from the cross and we will believe. And even the thieves on either side of him say, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us too. Until the bitter end, Jesus' hand is not moved. He does not succumb to the temptation to prove himself by force or coercion. His way will remain the way of the cross. Suffering for the sake of others. Not responding in kind by fighting fire with fire. But rather emptying himself in love his entire brief life. Inviting others to freely believe and participate. 
by demonstrating and embodying the fact that God's power is made perfect in weakness. The specific manner in which Jesus fends off temptation in today's text is instructive and compelling. In all three instances, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, It is written. It is written occurs verbatim in the first two, while a variation, it is said, occurs in the last instance. In all three instances, Jesus quotes Scripture, each time from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, the first time, chapter 6, the next two, each time expressing loyalty, fidelity, and devotion to God. One does not live by bread alone, he replies first, leaving out the rest but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him, He responds next. And then finally, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't it comforting and empowering to behold this tactic, this strategy of responding only? It is written. Because when you do that, you are not fighting your own battle. You are not expending energy in your own defense. But rather, you are referring, referencing something else that exists independently of you. Something else that came before you and dictates reality. Words, you see, have that power. It is written. I'm reminded of the story of that famed contralto, Marian Anderson, who, when she applied to music school, was turned away because of the color of her skin. Nevertheless, she debuted with the New York Philharmonic in 1925 and toured Europe in the 1930s. In 1939, now back in America, she was refused permission to sing a concert in Constitution Hall because she was black. In response, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt worked with her to arrange an outdoor concert at the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. They expected a few, perhaps several hundred people, to show up. Instead, 75,000 souls came out. Marian Anderson opened the concert by singing these words. My country, tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom bring. That was commentary enough. She didn't have to defend herself. Or her right to sing. That was her way of saying. It is written. She simply referenced earlier words. Which convicted hearts and minds. And made room for her gifts. It is written. Is simply a way of indicating that something was in the cards. It was predetermined. Decided earlier. It is reality that has been declared previously. It is, in essence, 
unalterable. I wonder what would happen, my friends, if we stopped trying to fight our own battles and simply rested in it is written. I wonder what would happen if instead of engaging negatively and stressfully and disputing angrily and resentfully, we simply declared it is written. When the enemy appears and sows the seeds of self-doubt, questions our divine identity bestowed in baptism and calls into question God's covenant, God's promises and God's affection for us, can we respond it is written. And just let the words work for us, fight for us, win the victory for us. When the devil tempts you that you are not really all that important to God, not really that significant in such a huge universe, why don't you just tell him it is written that God chose me in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that God formed me in my mother's womb, that I am the apple of God's eye. When he tells you that your sin is just too much. It's just too heinous to ignore or forgive. You tell him it is written. If the son makes you free. You will be free indeed. And there is therefore now no condemnation. For me or for anybody else. Who is in Christ Jesus. When folks intimate to you that you are less than. Based on your race, your socioeconomic status, or your gender, you just tell them it is written. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. When they tell you that you can't do it, that you don't have what it takes, don't get irritated, agitated, or discouraged. Just sit back and calmly say, it is written. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am more than a conqueror. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. He who is within me is greater than he who is within this world. It is written with God, all things are possible. And if God be for me, who shall be against me? If death itself is knocking at your door, just squint your eyes tightly, grit your teeth and say, it is written. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is written, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to humankind. God is faithful and God will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape. The new translation reads, a way out, that you may be able to endure it. You know what the way of escape is, my friends? You know what the way out is? It is written. It is written, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? It is written, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. God shall never leave you, nor fail you, nor forsake you. It is written, lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. It is written, all things work together for good unto them that love the Lord. And my grace, God says, is sufficient for you. Weeping may endure for the night. 
night. But joy, oh joy, cometh in the morning. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Nothing in all creation can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is written that you are a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and loved unconditionally and eternally. And because Jesus successfully passed the test that Adam and Eve failed because he paid the price for your sins and my sins and reconciled us back to God, what is written cannot be altered. God wrote it in indelible ink with a permanent marker. You know how I know that you're going to be okay? You tell me. Boom. Amen. We wish to thank you for your...